This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tremendous Trifles by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 8 The End of the World. For some time, I had been wandering in quiet streets in the curious town of Besancon, which stands like a sort of peninsula in a horseshoe of river. You may learn from the guidebooks that it was the birthplace of Victor Hugo, and that it is a military station with many forts near the French frontier. But you will not learn from guidebooks that the very tiles on the roofs seem to be of some quainter and more delicate color than the tiles of all the other towns of the world that the tiles look like the little clouds of some strange sunset, or like the lustrous scales of some strange fish. They will not tell you that in this town the eye cannot rest on anything without finding it in some way attractive and even elvish, a carved face at a street corner, a gleam of green fields through a stunted arch, or some unexpected color for the enamel of a spire or dome. Evening was coming on, and in the light of it all these colours, so simple and yet so subtle, seemed more and more to fit together and to make a fairy tale. I sat down for a little outside a café with a row of little toy trees in front of it, and presently the driver of a fly, as we should call it, came to the same place. He was one of those very large and dark Frenchmen, a type not common, but yet typical of France. The Rabelaisian Frenchman huge, swarthy, purple-faced, a walking wine-barrel. He was a sort of southern Falstaff, if one can imagine Falstaff anything but English. And indeed there was a vital difference, typical of the two nations. For a while Falstaff would have been shaking with hilarity like a huge jelly, full of the broad farce of the London streets. This Frenchman was rather solemn and dignified than otherwise as if pleasure were a kind of pagan religion. After some talk, which was full of the admirable civility and equality of French civilization, he suggested, without either eagerness or embarrassment, that he should take me in his fly for an hour's ride in the hills beyond the town. And though it was growing late, I consented, for there was one long white road under an archway and round a hill that dragged me like a long white cord. We drove through the strong, squat gateway that was made by Romans, and I remember the coincidence, like a sort of omen, that as we passed out of the city I heard simultaneously the three sounds which are the trinity of France. They make what some poet calls a tangled trinity, and I am not going to disentangle it. Whatever those three things mean, how or why they coexist, whether they can be reconciled or perhaps are reconciled already, the three sounds I heard then, by an accident, all at once make up the French mystery, for the brass band in the casino gardens behind me was playing with a sort of passionate levity some ramping tune from a Parisian comic opera, and while this was going on I heard also the bugles on the hills above that told of terrible loyalties and men always arming in the gate of France, and I heard also, fainter than these sounds and through them all, the Angelus. 
After this coincidence of symbols, I had a curious sense of having left France behind me, or perhaps even the civilized world. And indeed there was something in the landscape wild enough to encourage such a fancy. I have seen perhaps higher mountains, but I have never seen higher rocks. I have never seen height so near, so abrupt and sensational. Splinters of rock that stood up like the spires of churches, cliffs that fell suddenly and straight, as Satan fell from heaven. There was also a quality in the ride which was not only astonishing, but rather bewildering, a quality which many must have noticed if they have driven or ridden rapidly up mountain roads. I mean a sense of a gigantic gyration, as of the whole earth turning about one's head. It's quite inadequate to say that the hills rose and fell like enormous waves. Rather, the hills seemed to turn about me like the enormous sails of a windmill, a vast wheel of monstrous, archangelic wings. As we drove on and up the gathering purple of the sunset, this dizziness increased, confounding things above with things below. Wide walls of wooded rock stood out above my head like a roof. I stared at them till I fancied that I was staring down at a wooden plain. Below me, steeps of green swept down to the river. I stared at them until I fancied that they swept up to the sky. The purple darkened, night drew nearer. It seemed only to cut clearer the chasms and draw higher the spires of that nightmare landscape. Above me in the twilight was the huge black hulk of the driver, and his broad black back was as mysterious as the back of death in Watt's picture. I felt that I was growing too fantastic, and I sought to speak of ordinary things. I called out to the driver in French, Where are you taking me? And it is a literal and solemn fact that he answered me in the same language without turning round to the end of the world. I did not answer. I let him drag the vehicle up dark, steep ways until I saw lights under a low roof of little trees, and two children, one oddly beautiful, playing at a ball. Then we found ourselves filling up the strict main street of a tiny hamlet, and across the walls of its inn was written in large letters, Libau du Monde, the end of the world. The driver and I sat down outside that inn without a word as if all ceremonies were natural and understood in that ultimate place. I ordered bread for both of us, and red wine. That was good, but had no name. On the other side of the road was a little plain church with a cross on top of it, and a cock on top of the cross. This seemed to me a very good end of the world. If the story of the world ended here, it ended well. Then I wondered whether I myself should really be content to end here, where most certainly there were the best things of Christendom, a church, and children's games, and decent soil, and a tavern for men to talk with men. But as I thought, a singular doubt and desire grew slowly in me, and at last I started up. "'Are you not satisfied?' asked my companion. "'No,' I said, "'I am not satisfied, even at the end of the world.' Then after a silence I said, "'Because, you see, there are two ends of the world.' and this is the wrong end of the world, at least the wrong one for me. This is the French end of the world. I want the other end of the world. Drive me to the other end of the world. The other end of the world, he asked. Where is that? It is in Waltham Green, I whispered hoarsely. You see it on the London on the buses. World's End and Waltham Green. Oh, I know how good this is. I love your vineyards and your free peasantry. 
but I want the English end of the world. I love you like a brother, but I want an English cabman who will be funny and ask me what his fare is. Your bugles stir my blood, but I want to see a London policeman. Take, oh, take me to see a London policeman. He stood quite dark and still against the end of the sunset, and I could not tell whether he understood or not. I got back into his carriage. You will understand, I said, if you ever are in exile, even for pleasure. The child to his mother, the man to his country, as a countryman of yours once said. But since, perhaps, it is rather too long a drive to the English end of the world, we may as well drive back to Besancon. Only as the stars came out among those immortal hills, I wept for Waltham Green. End of chapter 8